Well, if you're new around here, we started uh, several weeks ago this study on the book of James. Uh, and uh, this is a study where uh, Alex did a, a great overview week one. Uh, I kicked us off uh, the very first week. Roger uh, Whitmore was able to share with us last week uh, on chapter two. And this week we're on chapter three. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open those up. If you do not have one, there are Bibles in, in several of the seats in front of you or underneath you. You can also turn your Bible on on your phone or your app or, or whatever you use. If you use an R app, there is a Bible feature on there, so you can just open that up as well. Uh, also, if you missed any of the sermons from this series, uh, this is a compact little book, but just unbelievably powerful. And so if you missed, uh, for whatever reason, any of those weeks uh, leading up to today, you can catch those uh, both on the app and, the, and on the website um, to, to catch up. James chapter 3, in part, reads like this. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into our mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great exploits. I want to say at the outset, I am guilty of my tongue being used for things other than praise. I am guilty of venom being spewed from my mouth. I am guilty of of filth coming from my mouth or judgment or criticism coming from my mouth. And I just want to acknowledge that because this morning uh, could be uh, one of those mornings where you feel convicted or judged. And I just, my prayer all week has been that you feel and sense what God wants to bring to mind because I believe very, very strongly this morning <laughs> He wants to convict. That isn't always the case on a given morning. Sometimes I feel like this is a morning where he wants to love and encourage and shower us with just his affection. And I just don't think that's the morning I believe he wants to convict hearts this morning. So um, please be praying that your heart is not justifying your actions or justifying your words or justifying how you speak or the language that you use. Allow God to judge that. In 1984, there was a British writer, and he's actually a Scrabble fanatic. Any of you Scrabble fanatics? Thanks, Joe. You're the only one. Okay. Uh, Scrabble fanatic, his name is Giles Brandreth. I think we have a picture of Giles. There he is. Uh, and he did significant studies, and he found that the, in the average human's lifetime, a person will speak some 860,341,500 words. That's a few. How many of you know someone that will supersede that tremendously? <laughs> oh, geez. All right. How many of you are that person? Okay. I'm sure we all have people in our lives that abuse their quota of words and they need to be put on like word probation, right? The point that James is making is that 
those 800 million plus words, those sentences, may seem insignificant in the moment. Around the kitchen table, driving in the car, talking on the phone. But taken as a whole, they will define the trajectory of your life. In fact, they will define your character, who you are. Our words matter. They have an impact. And the Bible says that they actually give shape to reality. We can just say they're passive. We can make fun of them. We can justify them. The Bible speaks unbelievable amounts about our words. Think about it. With your words, you land a job or you don't land a job. With your words, you build intimacy. Some of you guys need more training on that. With your words, you build friendships or lose those friendships. With your words, you build community. With your words, you build a family structure, a family culture. What we do, what we do for birthdays, what we do for Christmas, what we do to acknowledge someone's success. If you're in this room and you're under the age of 18, your words are building a relationship with your parents. Okay. <laughs> your words may have landed you in some deep trouble. Anyone? Your words may have gotten you a date. Or your words have made you lose that date. Robert. <laughs> Some of you have used your words to get out of a ticket. Honest. Raise them up if you have. Be honest. Come on. Mostly women. <laughs> and Alan. That is great. That's because you look like Santa Claus. It's not because you're a male. It's because they're worried about getting coal. Our words shape our reality. Everything we do, your words today is, are going to shape your reality when you go home, when you go to work, when you have that difficult phone call with someone, when you have to address something. It doesn't mean it's always going to be good. It doesn't mean it's always going to be bad. But our words, both given and received, shape our present reality. And starting the second half of verse 5, James introduces a new metaphor to this discussion. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. We understand that in Colorado. And the tongue is a fire. The, the tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body. Listen to that. The tongue stains the whole body. sets on fire the cycle of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. No other member of the body is spoken about in such magnitude as the tongue. And like a fire, our words spread. We can't put them back in. And they're often effective for not just the person delivered to, they're effective for those around us. 
Any of you who are familiar with forest fires know that there's a threefold triangle to create fire heat, oxygen, and fuel. That's, that's what cre- creates the, the fire triangle. You need all of those things to create the perfect storm, to create fires. We have seen these. Living in California for 20 years, I know them all too well. I've seen them way too close up. As a former police officer trying to help people evacuate, I've seen the results of fire. And when these three elements come together, heat, oxygen, and fuel, there's, a cha- there's like a chain reaction that a spark creates something. Who would have thought that just the tiniest little spark could create this? Who would have thought that a word, a single word spoken from your mouth could create this? But it does. Generally, Fires and our words are erratic. They're hard to predict. In fact, they're hard to predict once they come out of our mouths, what is the result going to be? Some of you men in this room, you, you, you've, you've practiced. I know, I know Jack and Ethan do this. You, you practice your, your pickup lines in the mirror. Some of you, <laughs> some of you men remember that, Eric, Fedor. Um, and you just, you change your facial expressions and you speed it up and you slow it down. Pat still does that. Um, but they're hard to predict what are the results going to be. And in the same way, James is saying, understand this, your words have a chain reaction. They're, they're not just given. I don't just speak a word to Alex. There's a chain reaction that is set in motion, a, a series of events, if you would, erratic, difficult to, to, to stop, and destructive events that come about. Some of you here, or for those of you who are listening in line, you know all too well the results of a chain reaction of our words. Why? Because you were the victim of uh, emotional, mental, verbal abuse by a man or a woman. Constantly being cut down, torn apart, hatred and venom, hurtful words from a parent or a coach or from a friend, someone you trust. And what they do is they set in motion a chain reaction that you then end up dealing with in your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. They don't go away. In fact, I would venture to guess for those of you in your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, if you were to close your eyes, you can still remember the hurtful words spoken to you by someone who you thought you could trust. And for that, I'm sorry. James continues his teaching. Here's what he says. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue. A restless evil, full of deadly poison. And we wonder why our tongues look gross. (laughs) With it, we bless the Lord and the Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. 
With it, we essentially sing praises to God, and at the same breath, we curse. I'm not talking about curse words. I'm I'm talking about the, the hurt and the evil that comes from our mouths. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. James is addressing this. And with this, we consider this primary question this morning. What kind of chain reaction are your words setting in motion? Again, let's just keep leveling the playing field. We're all there. There's not a single person in this room whose words have not set a chain reaction based on what has come out of your mouth. You didn't mean to. You didn't intend to. It wasn't your purpose. But it happened. And James offers these two possibilities, these these two options. He says, with our words, we either bless the Lord and Father, or we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. These options, blessing or curse, are not standalone options. By by that, I mean they're, they're part of the larger narrative of the Bible, of what the scriptures teach from the very beginning. They're not a set alone topic. It has always been this way. It's part of the larger story that's being played out since the beginning of time. Scripture tells us this. When God speaks... Here's a great truth. When God speaks in Scripture, He's not just conveying information, but rather things happen. Whenever God speaks, something happens. Read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's put this up on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, he created something. The earth was without form and it was void. Remember that. And darkness was all over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was without form and was void. These words are intended to convey something to us very specific about God's character. You're about to learn something even deeper about this God that you worship. What we see when we read all throughout Scripture through this lens is that when God speaks His words, the Bible, fill a void. And we all have different voids. It's why there's substance abuse. It's why girls will stay with idiots. It's why many, many women will stay with a man that continues to abuse her. It's why we will pursue success or possessions. There's a void. And when God speaks, his word fills that void. Think about it. He brings life. This is a God who who sets in motion the very environment whereby no creature is ever forgotten. Every ant, every gnat, 
Every deer, every birds of the air are under his watch. Because he fills a void. And immediately after God creates people in Genesis 1, his words out of Genesis 1 were told that he blesses them. He brings life to them. And Scripture shows this pattern. God brings something into being, and then He affirms it. And God has been wanting to affirm you your whole life. He has been wanting to breathe life into you since the day you were born. He adds value. He adds worth. And He uses His words to bless I love how A.W. Tozer sums up this part of God's character. A.W. Tozer is a great author and uh, has written some amazing books. And, And this is how he describes God's character. He says, this word of God is the breath of God filling the world with living potentiality. Meaning you have not yet found your potential. And how do we know that? Because God is still breathing potential in you. That means there's more of you to be discovered. There's a better husband, a better wife, a better kid. Better, not in the sense of success. Better, not in the sense of of accomplishments. uh, Better, not in the sense of obtaining things, but that refining fire of chiseling away and finding who are you really supposed to be. And from the very beginning of Scripture, we see another story that unfolds that has to do with our words. In Genesis chapter 3, using words, the serpent is deceptive. With words, the serpent convinces the man and the woman to eat of the tree claiming it will be best for them, when in reality, it's just going to lead to death. Essentially, in James chapter 3, James is asking his readers, which chain reaction will you choose to live with, that, with the words that you speak every day? Are you going to allow the words that you use create a chain reaction that brings life and praise, or are you going to allow the words that you use create a chain reaction that's going to bring death and destruction? You do one or you do the other. It's sobering. Will you speak words that bless, that move uh, into those empty spaces and bring health and healing and hope? Or will you speak words that speak to a different story? James makes it clear, choosing God's way, how we use our words, what words actually come out of our mouths will lead to life, choosing self, And what we justify, what we want to say, will lead to our own demise. It's a statement that's kind of hard to swallow that's coming next. He says this, The tongue sets on fire the cycle of nature, 
and is itself set on fire by hell. I told you this wasn't a touchy-feely, happy, happy Sunday. The word that's used for hell in verse 6 is the Greek word Gehenna. Alex, several months ago, uh, I'm sure it was life-changing. I can't remember what it was on, but you, you talked about hell. I'm just, I'm kidding. Alex basically unpacked uh, hell. Um, and he talked about this. He talked about this place called Gehenna. And this word in verse 6 that we translate it as hell is actually the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was actually a valley just outside of Jerusalem. Everybody knew where this place was. You couldn't miss it. And we know that James wrote this book from inside of Jerusalem. It would be like if you and I were writing a book together and we reference Boulder or we reference Erie or, or Louisville. It would be something very, very known to all of us. He lived there his entire life, James did. So he knows this place unbelievably well. Very, very familiar. Tradition held that certain kings of Judah had offered child sacrifices in Gehenna. So it was a place that Jews knew to be a place of death and destruction and despair and evil. Some referred to it as this name, the Valley of Slaughter. Eventually, it became the site where garbage was thrown along with people. Burning of the garbage and burning of the bodies were tossed into this valley. And once they were dead, they were eaten by dogs. I'm not trying to be disgusting. I'm not trying to be um, heightened. I, I'm just trying to give you a vision for what this valley was. Garbage and death and women and children burned alive and eaten by dogs. Horrible. Gehenna. Not a friendly place and not anyone, not a place where you'd ever wish even your worst enemy to be. And James issues a very strong warning. He sends friends, listen. And humbly, I give us this same message. If you're not careful, your tongue can land you in Gehenna not land other people in Gehenna. If you're not careful, your tongue can land you in Gehenna. Some of you have said things that you wish beyond wish you could take back. Even this week or, or maybe even this morning or, or maybe you've developed some patterns of speech, some colorful language that has landed you in a, a place of deep isolation and not like Christ. And if that loneliness, based on our words, have, have led you to a place of loneliness, that place of loneliness can feel like Gehenna. The destruction as we're healing relationships can actually feel like Gehenna. And the point is not to say that you're going to hell if you can't surrender your tongue or your speech. 
That's not the point. The point is that your tongue, according to the Bible, reveals the condition of your heart. Are you with me? And if you aren't sure about the condition of your heart, it can actually kill you. My brother-in-law last week went in for a stress test. 53 years old. And the result was, uh, I'll make this story short and sweet, needed a, uh, a heart catheter to take a look. It was about two-hour surgery about, after about 15 minutes. Um, stopped the surgery and said, you need open heart, double bypass, and replace an aortic valve. So on Tuesday of this week, uh, he went in for surgery. His name's Kevin. Kevin's surgery was supposed to be, my brother-in-law was supposed to be four or five hours, and it went nine hours. And they had to do an awful lot of work. And so for this, for basically Thursday, Friday, and yesterday, I've um, gone without any sleep. <laughs> so if I'm a little weary, uh, staying in his room and, and basically being his nurse to help care for him. But here's the thing, because it was discovered that something the condition of his heart wasn't quite right. They were able to make adjustments. They were able to do surgery. Are any of you a part of that club, the heart surgery club? It's not really a club you want to belong to. You know, like National Honor Society, <laughs> heart club. But because they were able to find the, the condition of his heart, he was able to kind of clean it up, and then there's hope. And, I, I, and yesterday he went home, and I'm sure he's sleeping, watching football. But friends, listen, this is the gospel message. The gospel message says you have a heart condition, and it will play itself out in different ways to each our own. To one, it might be anger. To another, it might be the tongue. To another, it might be abuse. But we all have a heart issue. And the tongue, the Bible says, reveals your heart issue. And so it's not enough to just say, I'm going to clean up my speech. It means I'm going to clean up my heart. Or I'm going to go to the expert, the surgeon, God, if you would, that can clean up my heart so that the results are better. It's messy, but it's beautiful. And so if we bring our messy selves and our background and our complicated experiences and our childhoods and all the other garbage uh, with the task of taming our tongue, how do we get this right? How do we stand before God and say, I have surrendered my tongue to you and you, O oh Lord, have tamed it? How in the world do we do that? One that aligns with God's narrative when the tongue is hard and evil and perhaps even impossible to tame. The Bible gives us 
two specific answers, lots of answers, but I'm just going to give you two this morning. And perhaps the most essential point from all of Scripture is this. Number one, we have to stand in a different place. We must stand in a different place. Let me say a little bit more about this to unpack it. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 14, there's this beautiful little prayer, and you know it. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice that the first part of this prayer is a petition that God would align what we say, the literal words that come out of our mouth with God's will, with his intentions, not ours. So anytime you speak, the Bible says that we should be asking that our words are aligned with his desires. Does that mean we spew this week during the election? That's between you and God. I will say this. It's disgusting. You just need to keep your mouth shut. Or say it nicely. That doesn't mean we don't disagree. That doesn't mean that we don't debate. That doesn't mean we don't speak our opinions. But good night. The internet is just Gehenna. It's just a bunch of trash. Or that we could speak words of blessings. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. And I'm also saying guilty as charged. And in the second part of that verse, the prayer makes this very cruel acknowledgement Cruel in the sense of that it is drawing a line that declares war. He acknowledges that the Lord is my rock and my redeemer. That is a declaration of war to the enemy. That is a declaration to the enemy that says, my words are not going to be your words. He is my rock and he is my redeemer. Therefore, everything that comes out of me, my actions, my words, my behavior, my demeanor, I am going to submit to him. This is the difference between fully devoted followers of Jesus and those that just believe in Jesus. And at this church, we are not creating a bunch of people that just believe there's a God. For the Bible says that even the demons believe there's a God. These two things have to go together. And here's the thing. We have to start with that same acknowledgement. Where we stand, can you stand and say, Oh Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Or is your rock something else? We don't like to admit it, but our rock becomes our family. Our rock becomes our job. Our rock becomes our paycheck. Our rock becomes our our acknowledgments. And that's just going to leave you empty. And unless we start first with God's truth, His love, His redemption, and redemption is just a fancy word for how God sees us eternally and our saving. But unless we allow that love and redemption to find its way to the very core of our being, our struggle with our words are going to be a struggle to the day we die forever. 
And it doesn't have to be that way. You ever heard someone go, sorry, this is just the way that I am. Sorry, this is just the way that I speak. Sad for that person. And if that's you, I don't mean that as a, as a, as a malicious criticism of you. I'm just saying, if you ever just go, well, that's just who I am. You just don't understand what God has waiting for you. The proclamation, the Lord is my rock and my redeemer, is the author's way. It's James's way of saying, I'm okay. I know where I stand in God's eyes. I'm confident and I'm comfortable where I stand. And therefore, I'm free to bless. You ever met someone, maybe it was a, a teacher or a family member, that no matter what happens, they just bless? They just love? No matter what is said to them, no matter how they're treated, you know, they, you get something like, well, bless your little heart. I've always thought that's their way of cryptically saying blank you, <laughs> like bless your little heart. But as I've grown older, I've realized there are some people who have allowed God to tame their tongue. And no matter what happens, they just bless. This is why God, uh, James acknowledges the importance of worship. Because worship changes our circumstances. So that's the first observation. It concerns with how we see ourselves, where we stand. We have to change where we stand. We have to stand at a different angle and say, okay, I'm going to stand over here because over here is forgiven and I know where I stand with God and I have a rock and I have a redeemer. Therefore, I'm going to look at things like this. That's number one. And the second one is we have to change what we see. Based on where we stand, we have to change what we see in others. I don't know if you know this yet, but Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming up. You guys aware of that? You know what comes with those two? Family. God bless family. How many of you have that crazy uncle Earl that walks in and you're like, oh, geez, how am I going to get through this Thanksgiving meal? Josh does? Awesome. Or let me make it a little bit more personal. You walk into work and there she is, the pain of your life. Or a teacher. You walk into school, you walk into the class, and the teacher utters something, and you're like, we all have it. Hopefully, it's not your spouse. We have to change what we see. And while James doesn't offer direct input on how we are to do this, he does give us a hint. In verse 9, he says, With the tongue we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. 
James is saying that each time we curse another person, it is though we are cursing God himself. You go, well, I don't curse. I'm not talking about colorful language. I don't know how else to describe it. We'll just call it colorful. Now, I know there are some of you that are sitting here and you're like, okay, that's great in theory, but you're a pastor. It's Sunday and you don't know my mother-in-law. <laughs> Certainly not you, Polly. Amen. Wise. <laughs> that's why you're an elder. <laughs> or you don't know my 13-year-old. Or you don't know my boss, or you don't know my neighbor, or you don't know my teacher, or you don't know this kid. You might be sitting here going, hey, that sounds great scripturally, but if, if you were to look at the image of blank, whoever is in your life, they reflect more like a Darth Vader, Freddy Krueger, Jason sort of image more than God. And I understand that. But there are a couple of things that we have to remember. The first is that James acknowledges that this is hard. See, scripture doesn't just get handed to us and say, suck it up, buttercup, like do your best. And if you fail, then we're going to have to deal with that. Like scripture makes it clear this is hard stuff. I ran my own scientific study while I was at the hospital. When you're caring for a heart surgery patient, and A, they're on tons of drugs, so they're weird, and they're in and out of sleep, so there's a lot of boredom that comes in, so after playing with all the gadgets in the room and <laughs> having nurses say, don't touch, sorry to the nurses in the room. There's just too many buttons to push. Like, it, honestly, they expect you just to sit there and not touch anything. It's, it's not realistic expectations. I decided I would, for the next few days, I would walk the hospital. And anyone who I saw even remotely working, there are a lot of lazy people. Anyone who I thought was working even remotely, I thanked them. I just went up and you know, this one guy, I thought he was going to have a heart attack, no pun intended. He was, he was sweeping, you know, and I'm sure he sweeps all day, every day. And he's just sweeping. I, and I went up and I scared the pee out of him because I grabbed his shoulder and he turned around with huge eyes and I said, hey, I just want to say thanks for sweeping. And he just kind of stared at me like I was, you know, from another planet and then said, thank you. And I kept walking. I did this to every, I didn't even tell you this, I did it to every single person. And then I did it to multiple. And I think the nurses were starting to get a little freaked out because I would just say, hey, thanks for filling up that water. Hey, thanks for opening that door. Hey, thanks. And they're like, weirdo on floor three. <laughs> but here's the deal. You know what happened? No negativity. No pessimisticness. No hatred. None of it. 
And what I found was in my little scientific study is that as I spoke, the reaction was life. And then I started to observe those who weren't doing that. And if you've ever been in a hospital, there's a few of those. Family members that it's too loud, it's too cold, it's too hot. My pasta's cooked too much. I've, I've rang the nurse's button eight times and you just got here. And people yelling in their rooms, let me go and get me out of here. And just the opposite. And you know what? It created tension and filth. Don't get me wrong, I don't do that every day. I only did it for two and a half days. <laughs> then I went back to normal. Because driving from the springs back here brings sin out. <laughs> so don't look too high on me. But James, James acknowledges that this is hard and it's going to take practice. It's muscle memory. It's something that I learned there that I have to keep applying now. But we have to change our vision so that we see the image of God in others. Especially when that image seems very, very buried. And you go, hey, they might have the image of God, but I think it's like in their toes. Those are the ones that's hard. But here's the beautiful reality. Friends, this is so important for us to get right. When we change our view and speak words that affirm the image of God in another person, we actually bring that person closer to grasping their true identity in Christ. That could be our kid. Or it could be the poor soul that I scared sweeping. And it takes a lot of work. It takes failing and picking yourself back up. It's, it's using our words to do something. But, but here's, a, here's a really good truth, and this is kind of hard. Speaking our words that bring life is a perishable skill. You understand what perishable skills are? Let me help you. How many of you took French, Spanish, German in high school and you're like over 50? How many of you still speak it really well? Now you know what a perishable skill is. It's perishable, meaning if you don't practice it, it is going to dissipate. It's going to go away. You cannot keep it up. It's something that you cannot say, hey man, I, I was great with my tongue this week and then back off. It's like the gym. You can't say, man, whew, I crushed it for like two days. It is time to rest. You're just going to fall right back. The tongue is the same thing. It has to be an every day, every week, every month, every year thing that we are surrendering by to God. Why? Because the Bible describes it as filthy. And I'll add, not just filthy spiritually, but just is disgusting. I don't know how doctors and nurses look at those. They're gross. 
But the beauty is the Bible says that the tongue can actually be a thing of beauty, that it can speak life, that it can speak hope, that it can fill in those gaps. And remember this as you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, whether you're the oldest of old or, or student, as you surrender to the work of the Spirit in you, it's God Himself speaking potentiality to you. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, my prayer is that you take some time today to, to think about your word choices. That you take some time today to think about the speech. And then humbly um, bring that before God and, and kind of pray the prayer. Try me and see any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way and I'll do whatever it takes. Like if you could just say that prayer with full integrity, man, God can turn your life upside down. But I beg you, whatever you do, don't, don't leave here and get in the car and get with a friend or a spouse and justify how you speak. That's the enemy. Don't justify yourself. Humble yourself. It's brutal. It sucks. But it's good. And the table that we get to enjoy is such an incredible representation of that. That it doesn't matter how filthy we are. It doesn't matter the, the venom that's come out of our mouth. Let me help you on this. Whether you have spoken it or tweeted it or Instagrammed it or Facebooked it or emailed it or sign languaged it. Doesn't matter. What matters is this table represents a new beginning, a fresh start, a new covenant. That says, man, if you're like that, you're the exact person that I've invited. And so that table is free for you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Jesus poured out for you. So that there's a new covenant, a new hope, a new promise. Not, not one of success and achievement, but one of humbleness and an acknowledgement of great need. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we get to join with the church of ancient years. So that's what we get to do as, as the team leads us beautifully in, in worship. Uh, come as you are. Uh, come when you're ready. You can take the communion right away or you can gather as a family. You can sit at your seat and hold it. This is your time. I will ask that um, you uh, exit through the sides and come back to your seats in the middle. Just helps a little bit with uh, traffic congestion. But don't be rushed. Remember how we started the service. Be still and know that I'm God. Don't be in a hurry. If your row gets up and you're not ready, it's fine. People are fine with you saying, excuse me, do not get up just because your row is up. Wait. Let's pray together. So Lord, what a hard topic. It's hard because every one of us use words, some of us more than we should. And yet, 
you wrap our words in grace and, and mercy and, and, and give us the ability to be forgiven and, and to change and to make adjustments. And this is one of those mornings. So thank you. Thank you that you continue to work on our character and that Philippians give us this beautiful promise that he who began a good work will carry it on until the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. And so until then, we are a work in progress. And that's good. So please guide our time as we come to this table. Thank you that you've saved a seat right by you. And that there's an abundant amount of, of love waiting for us. So hear our praises as we sing and enjoy your table. In the name of the living Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you...